Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I can't tell you how happy it makes me to look down and see my dad from Arizona sit here this morning. The very first person along with my mom who from the crib had taught me to love Jesus and to love the Word of God more than anything. And then just a few moments ago, I had no idea that, that, that it would even happen, but, but a teacher of mine from Arizona, I was in third grade, I was in her class. She also is here from Arizona. And um, it, it just makes me so happy knowing that, I mean, who would have known that, that 25 years ago when, when I was sitting in, in her class, that 25 years later we would be in Pennsylvania and I would be the minister at a church. Anybody who knows my backstory knows just, just how improbable all of that was, but God is the God of the impossible. What can I say? It was an incredible scene. There is this enormous crowd gathered in the streets of Jerusalem. And there is just something in the atmosphere, there's something in the air that is electric, that is nuclear. And as you make your way through the crowd and you get as close as you can to the streets, you begin noticing very rare things. You see people with their coats and they are spreading them across the road. You see other people who have a branch out of a palm tree and they are spreading that all over the place across this road. And this lets you know right off the bat that whatever is about to happen is going to be very, very special. And that's because this is how you welcome a prince into town. This is the custom of honoring a warrior when he returns home from a triumphant war or from a, a, a victory of some kind. This was the custom of a new king being crowned and going to his throne, sitting down upon it for the very first time. And as you look around at all the people and you get to the edge of this street, you see something that you will never forget. You catch your very first glimpse of a young Jewish man riding on a donkey of all things. And I just can't really describe it, but, but there's just something about it that will take your breath away when you see this. And I mean, there are people all around you and in front of you and behind you with the biggest smiles on their faces, shouting at the top of their lungs one word over and over again, Hosanna. They say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, in the highest. I mean, the whole city is just stirring. Well, there are only a few guys who aren't radiant, and they look like they, they might be clergymen, in fact, the way that they are dressed. Everybody else is smiling from ear to ear, but, but these other guys have their arms folded. They're just grimacing at each other, and you hear one of them blurt out, look at this. The whole world has gone after him. Can you believe this? Can you believe this? And yet everybody else is screaming themselves hoarse in the avenues. Hosanna. Blessed is he, is, is our King David and his coming kingdom. Hosanna is, is a word which means save. 
Save us now, save us, is what they are are, um, crying out. It was a prayer. It was a civic longing. Save us now. And what they're saying is, oh Lord, save us from this Roman oppression. Save us and revitalize our nation. Bring us back to our glory days, oh Lord. And Jesus Christ, with his eyes resolutely set on Jerusalem, enters into it into this magnificent reception and procession. And when he reaches up there at the very top of this hill, and he dismounts off of this donkey, he has this aerial view of Jerusalem and all of its splendor, and all of its pomp, and all of its pomposity. And it says that that he begins crying. Jesus begins straining his vocal cords, crying at the top of his voice, wailing aloud in a disturbing fashion. And that's because while everybody else is so ecstatic about his arrival, and they're saying, save us, O Lord, save us, save us, Jesus knows that he is not the kind of Messiah that they want him to be. Jesus understands that here is a people who who are proclaiming how their government might be saved to the man who is coming so that he could die in order to, to save them and to redeem them from their sins. Well, the very next day, Jesus enters into the temple with with his apostles. It's found in Mark chapter 11. And of course, this this is that that very well-known instance where Jesus is going to go inside the temple and he's going to start driving out what he sees inside it. Mark chapter 11, this is just days before he would go to the cross. It is at Passover time. Mark chapter 11, and starting in verse 15, here's what it says. It says that, but then they, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And you know, for so long, I thought that I had this text understood. I thought that I had grasped it. For my entire life, I would read this and think, well, yes, Jesus is mad here because they are are buying and selling in the temple. Jesus is so livid because there are money changers, it says, and they are more than likely cheating people out of the money. That is why he's so worked up here. And yet, you know, a closer and a deeper look in this text, it reveals that that really is a black and white illusion of what is going on here living color. It is not the commerce that Jesus is objecting to. Jesus is not objecting to the commerce necessarily. That is not at all inappropriate. Because this is a Passover time. And there are, are hundreds upon thousands of people who are coming hundreds upon hundreds of miles away. I mean, who wants to drag a lamb 400 miles 600 miles. And yet rather, 
as one historian wrote, who actually lived in this time, that at one Passover there were 255,000 lambs that had been sacrificed at Passover. And so having, having these sacrificial animals already there on site, it was actually a very necessary thing for these people. And Jesus also does not object to the money changers because in order to come inside this temple, you would have to have a Jewish coin, which was a half shekel. And yet the main coin, which was in use in this time, was a, a um, coin that had come out of Rome, actually. And yet once again, there are many people coming into Jerusalem from, I mean, all over God's green earth who have all, all kinds of coins. And so having a means of coin conversion right there on site at the temple, it was very necessary. And so we might hear that and we might think, well, okay, but, but why? Why does Jesus go inside the temple doing what he does here if he has no problem with the buying and with the selling? Why is Jesus responding so, so angry in, you know, in a visceral way? Well, you see, the reason why Jesus is so angry, the reason why he's throwing chairs and tables all over the place is because of what we read in verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus begins opening his mouth and he starts to, to instruct everybody there. He says that my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. And now what Jesus is doing here as he says this is he is actually quoting a couple of prophets, Isaiah as well as Jeremiah. And he begins with Jeremiah as he says that, that you have made my father's house a den of robbers. Now, if we really consider this very closely, if you were a person who was a robber, your actual den was not where you would commit your crimes or your robberies. But rather, a robber's den is where a robber would go once he had already committed the crime so that he could then hide inside that den until his next robber. So what Jesus is really saying in color here is that you guys think that you can live any way that you want. You think that you can sin as willfully as you wish to. You want to have all of your hope and trust in this government, in this temple, in this man-made structure. And then you think that you can just come, come running into this temple. And once you cross these state lines, everything is going to be okay, and God is going to be just fine with you living any way that you wish to live. You see, this is why Jesus is so angry here. Jesus is not at all mad about the buying and the selling and the coin converting. Jesus is objecting to exactly where this is, is transpired. That's because where all of this is being conducted in is, is in the very court of the Gentiles. They are buying and selling right there in the court of the Gentiles. And as he also, he also is quoting Isaiah the prophet where Isaiah says long ago, he says, also those who are foreigners, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning His Sabbath and holds fast His covenant. And then here it is, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, I want them to be joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all 
of the people. And so, what we see here is that God's holy temple in Jerusalem, this was a place of worship for Yahweh God. This was where, once upon a time, this was the place where if you wanted to, to worship God or to draw, draw near to God in His presence, this was where God's presence had resided. It had been built by Solomon a thousand years before this time. It took seven years just to build. It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel after the Babylonians had destroyed it. At one time, we know that the Ark of the Covenant had been inside this very compound. And inside that temple, you had a, a room called the Holy Place. And then on the other side of that room, you had what was known of in the Hebrew as the Hagia Hagion, or the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And we're talking about a place so holy and so sacred, where only one man could, could ever go inside only once a year. This was where, if you were a Hebrew in the first century, God was behind that very veil, that very curtain. And so, I mean, of all places in the holy city of Jerusalem, this was by far the absolute greatest in splendor and in magnificence. And yet, as we see here in the pages of Isaiah, really one of the most important functions of this temple was to be a light and a beacon to the Gentile world. Everybody who was a, a foreigner, who was an outsider to Jerusalem, this was a light and a beacon to them. But rather than a reverent atmosphere that is ready to, to come before God and to, to lift holy hands and to be in the presence of Almighty God and to stand before Him, rather the words of King David come to our minds in a painful fashion. Where King David wrote long ago that, that there is no fear of God in their eyes. And so as these foreigners, as these Gentile people are coming into the temple, into the only area where they could ever go by law inside that temple, as they are trying to offer prayer and sacrifice and worship to their God in peace and in quiet, they are being completely and utterly in a state of distraction by, by all of these animals and by supermarket Offerings and price happen right there in front of them. What this, what this is really communicating to these outside Gentiles is that we're going to use your area in the temple to conduct our business. Really what this says to them is that you guys don't matter at all. We are the ones who matter, and really this is all about us. And so we're going to use your, your area in your space to do our price hacking. See, this is why Jesus is as livid as he is in our text. He says that my house shall be called a house of prayer, not just for the Israelites, but for all of the people, anyone who will draw near to God. And what theologian, he, he helpfully explains, and he sheds a lot of light on this. His name is Brad Nelson. He, he writes that when Jesus did this, he wasn't merely throwing around chairs and tables around. But he is amongst the people who the only thing that these people care about is their government, is their country, and returning to their um, glory days. 
And so when Jesus walks into this temple at Passover time, this is the equivalent to going inside the White House and just destroying the Oval Office. This is what Jesus is doing just moments before as he walks up to a fig tree. Now, in Palestine, figs were, were a very strong emblem. It would be like our American flag. And yet, what, what does Jesus do as he stands before that fig tree? He makes it wither. See, this is not just some random miracle Jesus is doing. But Nelson writes that as Jesus makes that fig tree wither, Jesus is doing the equivalent to burning the American flag at Independence Day. He's saying, you people trust in your own government. All that you care about is making me your own king just for you. And as Jesus walks into the temple and he does this, he's saying, I am shutting this down right here and right now. And in fact, he also writes that, that no sacrifices were being made for, for an upwards to a full hour after Jesus clears this area here. And I mean, he literally shuts down God's, God's temple for an hour. And he's saying, and what he's emphasizing is that you are not going to misuse my name anymore. This is going to stop right now. It's not the commerce which Jesus is objecting to. It is this attitude that, that I can sin as much as I want to. I can cheat. I can steal. I can bow down at, at idols if I want to. And God is going to be okay with me as long as I am physically here in this temple. It was a blatant lack of compassion and disregard for the outsider and for the Gentile in their own space. And yet I also want us all to, to um, notice the response of the chief priest in verse 18. There in verse 18, it says that the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy Jesus, for they were afraid of him. And that's because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. It says that the whole crowd who is watching Jesus and who, and who hears him saying these things, they, they are mesmerized at what he's doing and that's because there was just something about his composure. There was just something about the way that Jesus spoke that awed everybody and that gave them chills and that made them tremble. And yet as these chief priests hear and as they observe everything that is going on here, they are, are scared to death of Jesus and they want to destroy him. And now, when was the last time you wanted to destroy another person? I mean, this is not some, some minor emotion. This is intense, gurgling, animosity, jealousy, and hatred. Because in their minds, they were the authority of the scriptures. They were the religiously elite. No, no one else. And yet, when the truth had been spoken, and when their error when they had been exposed in the light, how did they respond? How did they react? They responded with, with anger. They responded with hatred and arrogance. And they did not want to kill Jesus. They wanted to destroy Jesus, it says. They, they wanted to mutilate Jesus once they had already destroyed Jesus. 
And yet here's where we really start, start reading this black and white passage in HD code. That's because, what if I told you that this is not the only time that Jesus ever did this in its own? In fact, this is not the only time Jesus ever went into the temple and he overturned chairs and tables. This is something that has happened even in the past before. As we come to John chapter 2, we see that in the very temple, under the very eyes of Almighty God, these people did something that they knew was inappropriate in, in God's holy temple. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it says that the Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their table. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume. Then in verse 18, it says that the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And so what we need to understand about John chapter 2 is that this is not a parallel account of Mark chapter 11. But rather, this is a completely separate occasion. This is long before Jesus ever raised Lazarus even. This is more or less at the very start or at the very inception of his earthly ministry. See, this is three years earlier from what we just read in Mark. So what this means is that Jesus had to aggressively clear this temple at least twice of buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles. And if we go way back, I mean, we, we notice and we learn that this, even this, is not God's first rodeo inside his own house. And yet, if we go all the way back into the book of 2 Kings, we read about King Josiah more or less doing exactly what Jesus does here in theory, because in those days, you had male prostitutes doing their own business right there in the temple of God. You had women who were bowing down before idols, before Asherah poles, right there in God's own temple. This is not God's first rodeo here. This has been going on for, for 1,000 years, and Jesus has had enough of this. That's why he's overturning chairs and tables. And yet before we go any further out of John chapter 2, I just want to establish this very key point. Verse 15. Do you notice what verse 15 said? It mentions a scourge of cords that Jesus has. Now it does not say Jesus found a scourge of cords. It does not say Jesus bought a scourge of cords. It does not say Jesus had been walking and he just happened upon a scourge lying in the dirt and he picked it up. But rather what it says is that Jesus physically made a scourge of cords. And that was what he used to drive out those who were buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles. And I mean, just imagine what this scene had to have looked like. It is the Prince of Peace with a whip in his hand. 
he is going to town with it in the temple. Now, many years ago, I spoke with, with um, a guy in the church out in another state, up, up in um, Washington State. And in his job, he worked with this exact, um, with this exact same thing and the um, kind of material. And he told me that it would have taken him at least three hours to make a scourge of coins. And now that we're saying, or really exactly how long Jesus spent making this, this wood, we're never going to know that. Certainly as God in the flesh, Jesus could have just instantly made a whip appear in his hand. All of us, no one understands. But just the thought that it would have taken three hours to make a scourge of cords. What does this mean? This means that Jesus had time to really process and to consider this. He had time to reconsider and think, you know, maybe I am overreacting here just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Maybe I shouldn't go quite this far and actually make a whip. And yet, piece by piece, part by part, component by component, Jesus makes this whip. Righteous indignation flaring in his eyes, heart jackhammering within his chest, sweat pouring for perhaps three hours straight. But regardless of, of specifically how long it took Jesus to make and to fashion this whip, here's what is actually most important. It is the religiously elite's hearts, their double hearts, their, their intentional sin, their, their complete and utter lack of compassion or care for the outsider. This was so profane, it was so offensive, that it made the Prince of Peace want to make a whip with his bare hands and actually make that whip with his bare hands. And so Jesus took that whip, not to strike anybody with, not to harm any animals with, but to drive them out. And that's because the Holy Temple of God is a house of prayer, he says, for everyone, for all the nations, for all the people, well, then finally, Jesus took all of that zeal. And he took each and every sin that you have ever committed. He took each and every sin that, that I have ever committed. And we nailed him on a cross. Not very long after that, Jerusalem had been captured. That temple, as great as it was, it was reduced to rubble. And they tore that thing down in a heartbeat. And yet it didn't matter. That didn't matter because those who serve the risen Savior do not serve a God who dwells in temples made with human hands anymore. But rather, we serve a God who has taken up his brand new residency and his surprising and his shocking new home. That's when we come over into there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and starting at verse 17, we, we hear the Apostle Paul say this. He says, chapter 6 and verse 18, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And then he says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body, that your body is a temple 
of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and it is not from you, for you have been bought with a price. And so therefore, glorify God with your body. I mean, just think about what that was like for these first century Jews. Where for your entire life, God dwelt behind that, that veil that, that you could never go anywhere near. God was in that building. But now in Christ Jesus, everywhere that we go, guess what? We are at church. Everything that we do, we do it in church. That's because we, I mean, of all places, God could have chosen. He moves into these very complex and these very dark parts of ours. And he turns the lights on. On at least two occasions, Jesus cleared the temple. He turned the tables on the religious leaders, literally as well as metaphorically. He made a scourge of cords, something that, that, that would have taken at least three hours for, for anyone else to do. He was so consumed with zeal for his father's house that he, he could no longer tolerate what was going on there. Seeing people who had lost all reverence for God, all love for the Gentile outside. If Jesus were to walk through the temple courts of our hearts this morning, would he see anything that would not really belong there? What would he say? What would he do? What would he find? Are we exhibiting anything in our hearts in God's holy temple that would generate this kind of reaction from Jesus? In our thoughts, in our desires, in our daydreams, in the way that we look at other people, Every single one of us are filling God's holy temple with something, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Amen. Mm -hmm. I mean, how would Jesus react to what we are filling his, his house with? Would he find love? Would he find joy? Would he find compassion for homeless people? Would he find love for the kind of people who everyone else is demonized? Or would he find the detestable, disgusting sins that we are clinging to with the attitude of, it doesn't matter, I can live any way that I want to because this is all about me. I think if we're honest, every one of us have, have been there before in our lives where we're doing something where we know that, that yes, this nailed Jesus to the cross. And I know that this doesn't necessarily belong inside of God's temple, but I want to keep it here anyway. Because after all, I can live however I want to, and then I can just come, come running into a cathedral on Sunday morning, and oh my goodness, I dress so beautifully, and I look so good, and I've got the whole world fooled because of how righteous I appear on Sunday morning. See, this is the reason why Jesus goes inside the temple and he tears the place up. That attitude. And so, I mean, is it in your temple this morning? Who we really are is what we say, is what we do, is what we think, 
and it's how we behave when it seems like nobody else is watching us. That is who we really are, brothers and sisters. That is the real us. And guess what? God sees every single millisecond of it. Now in this text of 1 Corinthians, what Really what the context is, is that in this church there, there was rampant sin and a sexual sense. I'll never forget, many years ago, it was my um, dad who went to a conference um, in California, I believe, if I remember correctly. And the guy who was conducting this, um, this um, class, he had said in this huge, enormous ballroom that, that this class is going to be about accountability and confession. And he began speaking um, about pornography. Then maybe, maybe about four or five minutes later, he said that the rest of this hour is all yours. All the rest of this class is going to be about repentance and about accountability. And so he invited anybody who was addicted to pornography to just stand up. And as you might imagine, in this huge, enormous, grand ballroom that was crowded, you, it was rather quiet. You could hear a pin drop, in fact. And yet, sure enough, there was this very old man, who was an elder in the church, who slowly stands up. His hand is shaking. His tears pouring from his eyes. And then another guy stood up. Then another. And all of a sudden, there were, I mean, all across this barroom, all kinds of people have been standing up. Old people and young people, married men and unmarried men, elders and ministers in the church, Christians who were confessing that they were addicted to pornography. And the rest of this class had been a beautiful call to repentance. Now, that may not be what, what we struggle with, perhaps. If it is, then just know that, that I'm not shaming you. But, but, but rather, I, I'm mentioning that to say that, that either we all have, have exhibited something in the past, or we've got something in there right now. It might be arrogance. It might be gossip. It might be that you have a person in your life who you just refuse to ever let what they did go, and, and you'll never forgive them. But regardless of what is in our temples, Paul's invitation to us is to flee immorality. Sprint as far away from it as you possibly can. Have nothing to do with it anymore, because after all, God's temple is a holy sanctuary. And that we are to honor God with our bodies. So as we bring this to a close this morning, I just want to ask us really what the most important question of all of this is. What is our response going to be to what Jesus' commentary is about what is in our temples? Will our response be like the chief priests and scribes, who were too arrogant to acknowledge their own faults, but who instead were so angry against the truth that they were willing to go against that truth by actually killing someone? Is our response going to be like those chief priests and scribes? Or will our hearts and our souls be wide open? Will they be humble and honest? Will we ask ourselves, why is lust in my temple? 
Why is pornography in the house of the Lord? Why is jealousy lingering and festering in God's holy temple? Whatever it is that is inside of our hearts this morning, we can look at it and we can know in our bones, this does not belong in God's temple. And the only way that, that we can respond as we need to is we've got to invite Jesus in. As they say, truth fears no investigation. As King David wrote long ago in Psalms, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way within me, and then lead me in, in that way which is everlasting. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and test my heart. Our Lord saw that the disregard in the temple was so great, and he made a scourge. Something that would have required at least three hours to do. And he looked at this hopeless, sin-cursed earth. And he made a way for us to be set free from, from, from all of that. Something that took six hours on Roman cross. Is our temple a house of prayer for the Lord? Is our, our hearts and our temples beating for all of the people of this earth? Or is it filled with doves and with bleeding lambs, with coins spilled out all over the ground, and with a heart that, that hates and despises anyone who does not look like us? May we have a heart just like King David's, as we're honest about what is inside of our temple.